When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Writer's Room, where the funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny stuff for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, Emmy-winning writer and comedian, Jeff Cesario. Welcome to the podcast. This is going to be a fun one today. I've worked with this guy many times. I love him. Writer for Rolling Stone, writer for television, award shows, series, writer for books, the books people can't get enough of them. He's got a, a beautiful painting of Sinatra behind him, which uh, for my money, the greatest album ever, Frank Sinatra with the Count Basie band led by Quincy Jones, Live at the Sands, 1966. And that's the uh, that's the art. Uh, David Wilde. David, how are you? Hey, Jeff, it's great to see you. Great to see Gary here. Yeah. He's not allowed to speak for legal reasons. Um, he better speak. And such. Uh, you know, it's funny, yeah, that picture is because when I met my wife and we were uh I had just written the liner notes for Frank Sinatra for the duets record oh wow. and I took that money and bought an engagement ring so when we were looking for furniture this was in a, in the furniture store and I I, it's, I did that thing that like is obnoxious where I'm like they said that's not for sale I said everything's for sale and I bought it I love it but I've been thinking about it because as we're speaking uh, a writer named Bill Zamey died. Uh, yes. Uh, just, you know, this weekend. And uh, he wrote the liner notes for duets two. I wrote the liner notes for duets one. We both came from Esquire and Rolling Stone. I just was pulling his book off the shelf to take another look. So yeah, uh, that, I wanted to bring this down, this comedy conversation. I wanted to inject a little death and misery. Well, listen, uh, let's talk Bill Zamey because he was a tremendous writer and uh, wrote a lot on comedy as well, uh, in music, and uh, was also, from all accounts, a great guy. Great. Um, how well do you know him, and how is this hitting you? Well, we started out together and really had oddly similar parallels up until the point, which is sort of so we can get back to me because God knows I brought up Bill Zamey, but let's. I think let's Bill not, would want it that way. I think I think I think any I think I would want it that way. If I were still alive, I would want me to focus on me. Uh, no, Bill sure. was great. Bill was a great guy, a great writer. It's very interesting because. He sort of loved TV and sort of ventured a little into that world, I think, trying to do adaptations of his books. But the interesting thing about, like, you asking me to be here uh, on a, a show, a podcast with this name is I have such a weird relationship with the writer's room. And really, my career was total happenstance in every way because I was a magazine writer. I had never thought of working in TV. And I... I really fell into it and and Bill like there were there are there's like there's different levels of funny there's stand up funny which stand ups think is always the highest level of funny sure the rest of the world knows not really if you go to a lot of comedy clubs not always funny uh there's real life funny like i just my father in law it was his big you know birthday party i 
I got some good jokes in during the birthday. I'm birthday party funny. But what happened in my weird life is I kind of, without trying at all, fell into being in writer's rooms. And my wow. first, yeah, well, I think it was really Joel Gallen, uh, who... Uh, Tenth Planet. Yeah, Tenth Planet. But His name has come up several times already, right, Gary? And, yeah, and absolutely. We've only been in writer's room about two months. and Yeah, usually yeah, there's he's legal action easy. and cursing involved, but no, but yeah. he really is... Uh, I, I think sort of two people got me into writing for TV, uh, Joel and then Ken Ehrlich at the Grammys, where I've been working, you know, for right. 22 years. But what basically happened is uh, Rolling Stone, where I, I come from magazine journalism, Esquire and Rolling Stone, like Bill Zamey, who you just want to talk about Bill now. But um, we both, you know, we both came out of two. Oh, we'll get magazines. back to him. And we're also yeah. going to get back to this bizarre insult of stand up comics. But go ahead. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, this we're going to get right to that because what my unique experience is, is that Joel uh, in 1994, I think it was, there was a Rolling Stone year in review TV special for one of the networks. And Joel called me, or Jan and Joel, Jan Wenner spoke. And I think I was asked to do a lot of the interviews for that. Uh, Bill may have done some, I don't know. Uh, but I was mainly sort of the off-camera interviewer because, as you can see looking at me, I'm perfect for off-camera. I'm perfect if you cut my questions out and uh, I'm perfect to write for people and not be on stage. But That's uh, a, the sign of a good interviewer is you don't even need the questions. <laughs> yeah, oh, believe me. I, don't pillory yourself. No, you can take a break. You can, I'll, I'll just yeah. continue talking. Gary um, can edit this all. You know what? I got a haircut. <laughs> I got to get <laughs> Exactly. Is that a... That that has a double meaning. I think I need a haircut. I, I, I think, I think that, everything has a double meaning nowadays. Yes, be uh, careful. We're about you to get canceled, so you can get canceled twice for a double meaning. That's fantastic. Um, in any case, there was this Rolling Stone TV special. I was interviewing. Uh, I think it was uh, Steven Spielberg, who was a director. I don't know if you've heard that name, but I think it was during that one. I made him laugh, and Joel, who didn't know me well, said. You're kind of funny, which is sort of that's going to be on my gravestone. You're kind sure. of funny. And he said, um, I think that was how Adam Crowley used to bill me on uh, on that show. Kind of funny. Um, but they uh, he said, you should write for the MTV Movie Awards, which I, which he was doing. And I my memory is I think my first writer's room was like Joel believed in a lot of writers in a writer's room. I don't yep. know if he believed in paying a lot of those writers very well, but he believed in a lot of people being in the room. He was pro-growth world population. And I remember being in a room with like, my early shows were like with all, like everyone from like Odenkirk and Cross to uh, Chris Rock to, yeah. uh, you know, to cut to my first Grammys was I got a call three days before the show saying, you want to write this show? And it was, you know, uh, John Stewart was called in to host in the last minutes of the pod, uh, of the TV show. And then I walked into a room and my initial memory was it was Jimmy Kimmel uh, as a writer helping John Stewart and Adam Carolla. But when Jimmy Kimmel was on our, my podcast with Phil Rosenthal, Naked Lunch, which is if, oh, did I promote it accidentally? Yes. Um, but oh, that, there was no accident to that. Yes, but when insurance Jimmy, uh, adjuster just came in and said no accident. <laughs> yes, uh, Jimmy Kimmel intentional. 
Yeah, Jimmy Kimmel said it wasn't, Adam. Uh, I don't know uh, the actual truth, but my early experiences then were being thrown into a writer's room with comedians who, oh, Louis C.K. was another early, early one. And in all these instances, I think I was viewed with uh, some confusion and some uh, concern that I was not, you know, what was I going to bring to the room? Right. Well, let me let me interrupt at this point because I think it's relevant. Oh, uh, you think you can interrupt is, on your own podcast? We're going to pretend it is relevant. Okay. Uh, no, it is uh, because I've been in those rooms yes. early in the 2000s when you came in. And I think the feeling was, oh, and honestly, this is the feeling. This is the guy who will handle all the real shit. So we can write the funny stuff. As anything musical, any music award show or anything to do with music or even television, because you have a, a pretty nice resume in television writing, too, in terms of books about television, things like that, interviewing stars. Everybody went, he can handle that stuff. That frees us up to write more jokes. Then there was a bonus, a very weird bonus to David Wilde, was the puns. You're a bit of a punster. You love puns. And in a room, that can be dangerous. In a room of stand-ups, puns is dangerous. But you were always able to pull it off. You had a nice Johnny Carson-esque soft shoe shuffle backwards after a pun <laughs> that would that would sort of endear you to comedians. And then you are genuinely funny. So you functioned on three cylinders for a lot of comics and for a head writer or a producer, uh, which I also functioned as with you in the room, it's such a relief to be able to go, David, we need a tribute to this musician who passed away. I have nine guys writing fart jokes. Can you please handle it? And you do. And you, it, it, in spades, producers love what you kick out. Well, thank you. That means a lot. That's a healing moment in this in my life because there was like a few years where I was not sure. Like, I will be honest, there was one a couple of years ago. Before he got in his trouble, uh, I was on the I was nominated at the Emmys and walking on the red carpet. And in front of us was Louis C.K., my wife and my wife goes, do you know him? I go, yeah, but he never spoke to me. And she went, what do you mean? I said, I mean, he literally it was like one of those award shows where there were like 14 writers. And yeah, he, not that he was rude to me. He just didn't care because I was not one of the there's like 12 comedians in a room and me and I he didn't notice me I don't think at all and didn't I don't believe he spoke to me cut to on the red carpet he turned around at that moment and said David oh my god it's so great <laughs> to see you and I'm like this is great because that's the first words you've actually ever spoken to me and I what I believe happened and this has happened including with my favorite comedian of all time Albert Brooks because of my, despite this punum, because I, my other life was talking about musicians. And right, that's even a little deeper. I know some Jewish terms, punum is past. That's the face. That's the face. Oh. And it's gotcha. usually, it's not like a, it, it's sort of like a, the Judd Hirsch of it all. The, you know, and that's a good, that's the up, yeah, upside of it. <laughs> they're not going. booing. They're saying punum. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But in any case, he he was like really friendly, and I uh, 
And that's when I knew his career was going to take a bad turn. But he was really, <laughs> he was he was really really friendly, and it was great, you know, because I had loved his show in the intervening years. But what had happened in the intervening years was, I think he must have seen me on the '60s, the '70s, the '80s, or some eighteen behind the music, or whatever it was. Right. And in his mind, he said, "Oh, I know that guy." And over the years, that this happened to me. The most spectacular time was at. Uh, the home of Phil Rosenthal. And did I mention we do a podcast called Naked Lunch? I, I think it's called Naked Lunch. Time. Yeah. I'm but assuming we, no nakedity actually happens. That not we, yet. We shoot, we shoot Naked Lunch from the Poonam up. Is <laughs> yeah, that exactly. right? But in any case, Albert Brooks came to movie night one night and he is literally my favorite, my favorite director, yeah. you know, and a hero who I never managed to meet i desperately he had been the opening act of neil diamond and when i produced a neil diamond behind the music i begged him to talk to me i could never get it so there i am at i'm at phil's house and albert brooks is there there's only like 20 people but i am not uh gary i don't know if you would actually know this about me i'm actually really shy if if i'm known in a world i'm very you know I'm chatty, but that's probably the same thing. You with the can writer. border on obnoxious if you're known. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Border. I wish I could get to the border of obnoxious, but in any case, he. Uh, I'm like, and and the head of Netflix, uh, Ted Sarandos, was at this in the group of twenty, so no one was going to notice me because everyone was looking for you know his checkbook in his yeah, uh, deal. Absolutely. Uh, but in any case, my wife sees i see my wife's face she's opposite me eating the very nice pizza that phil provides you know you know made by a world-class chef for free for jews what could be better but i'm looking at my wife's face and she has this look on her face like something's happening and it was albert brooks walking towards me going david how are you i haven't seen you in so long to which i said yeah my whole life because i have never met you and he goes, what do you mean? We know each other. And I'm like, I know you. We've been in probably a couple of the same like CNN shows or documentaries or something. We've never met. And I know this because you're my hero. And I would remember if I met you. And that's so those are two times where my comedy heroes showed me at least recognition. But the truth is my early comedy experiences, the reason I, and I'm not bitter anymore, most of my a lot of my closest friends are comedians, but early we'll check, on, we'll check with others on that, but go ahead. <laughs> no, but early on dealing with, and you've, listen, Jeff, you've always been a lovable guy and a great guy and respectful to people in a way that is not always typical of comedy <laughs> genius. There are a lot of comedy geniuses who are sociopaths or very, very, very screwed up and dark. And I'm not that kind that's not my personality. So when I come in as a non-stand-up comedian and have the balls to sometimes say, this would be funny, I mm-hmm. there was definitely early on a couple moments where I was like, uh-oh, I'm not in, uh, uh, maybe I am in Kansas. I'm not in uh, Brandeis. I'm not somewhere where I right. am going to be loved. Well, this isn't just about rooms, although we're going to talk more about writers' rooms. It's about the writing process, too. So we're going to get to the Rolling Stone stuff and the books and even the liner notes. I forgot totally about the fact that you, at one point in time, were like the hot liner notes guy when there were liner notes. At one time? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, in the 40s. While we're in the writers' room. When they were 78s, so I was the hot <laughs> Yeah, right. Writer. 
Uh, yeah, he did a bunch for Artie Shaw, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> no, by the way, this Grammy year uh, was I one of the groups I've done a lot of liner notes for is Fleetwood Mac, who've you know had this amazing sort of they've been rediscovered by future generations. So, every, like I've done, I think like. I, I believe I have liner notes on like three albums on the charts right now in England. Like in England, they're buying the very best of Fleetwood Mac and the right. Fleetwood Mac's greatest hits and the other four versions of that and reissues of albums. They're buying them right now in bulk. Uh, Let's dive in because you're writing liner notes for Fleetwood Mac album. Yes. What's the approach? Are you talking to them? Do you talk to other people? Do you just go off in a room and write your impressions? It's every every which way but loose, to quote the movie that I believe you started. Uh, with yeah, Clint it was me and Clint Eastwood. A lot of people don't know. Were you the, it was a monkey and you and Clint Eastwood. That was, and only the arms were a hair suit. The rest of it was <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, In any case, it, everything from probably the most... The, Frank Sinatra was where... The duets record came out, was coming out, and I got the call because I'd moved here for Rolling Stone in 1991. I had never learned how to drive in New York. I was one of those people. So I had to, Jan Wenner got me driving lessons, and I bought my my first solo drive without a driving instructor was from LAX to the Sunset Marquee when I moved here in 1991. So I was in love with learning how to drive. Like, so I went from having never driven to driving every weekend to Las Vegas because a, I'd never really had been to Las Vegas. I loved Sinatra and he was playing there every weekend. Also, I had no friends or girlfriends. So I would get in a car and drive to Vegas and I would, I had Frank Sinatra and his camp heard that there was this Rolling Stone writer who was coming to see him every weekend. I couldn't believe how cool it was seeing Frank Sinatra in Las Vegas in 1991. And it's like grunge is hitting and I'm watching Sinatra. So he asked, they, I got the call asking me to write the liner notes. And in that case, it was really writing an essay, kind of a personal essay, but also I was faxing questions, faxing, mind you, questions wow. to, for, for Frank and getting some responses I don't know who, I don't know if it was his wife at the time. I don't know quite how that worked. Everything from that to uh, a couple, not that many years later, uh, I had just done an interview in Rolling Stone with Mick Jagger, and I get a call on a Thursday saying, David Love, David Love, which is like, you know, I'm I'm nominally straight. Gary might know more than I do. <laughs> I, I could be wrong. But I, even I was like, holy shit, David Love. Yeah. Uh, he goes, could you get us some liner notes? We're doing a set called 40 Licks. It's sort of our greatest hits of some new songs. Could we have it by Friday? And I'm like, yeah. And I sure. sort of then realized Friday is like tomorrow. And so I stayed up all night and wrote an essay. And then I was told to fax it the next day to Mick and to Keith. Fax it where to where they're rehearsing uh, in, I think it was Toronto, and I got the notes back, which, you know, call, you know, I think Mick called with the notes and they were like, uh, you used one word of Yiddish. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, as this is going to 14 Arab nations, could you maybe lose that? I think I, I called myself. I said I self-identified as the stone schlepper on the liner notes. And then I made one joke about uh, Mick's knighthood. And Mick was like, as Keith wants to kill me, 
uh, for that. How about if we lose that joke? And I was like, okay, you know, but then I believe I got like, I don't know if it was like, it may have been an arrow sent through my window from Keith. That's how he, I can't remember how he communicated. I don't think he called me, but I got this message, which was like, he had apparently like an actress on the Desperate Housewives cast did when I was writing for them at the Emmys one year. I think he counted lines about Mick and how much was about him. Oh and he said, he, I, I got the message, give me more credit. That was like, so I, that's the one note from Keith Richards. That was it. Just give me more credit. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, yes. Uh, and those were those liner notes, but in, it's in. Fleet so are you, you're writing impressions of the group, your impressions of their music and of the group. This, cause it's tricky to write good liner notes. It's not an easy, this is why you get the call. Oh, well, I don't write good ones. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, uh, no, in some cases, like Fleetwood Mac, I will yeah. tell you, it's sort of like being a child of. We get the Leonard world. Feather on the phone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, that's a that jazz reference. That's the kind of material you have that will kill I know. people it, who it died just... five to ten years ago in the jazz. <laughs> Talking about a Jewish reference with Arab <laughs> nations. Yeah, I would have gone with Nat even Hentoff, deeper than that. But you, you go with Leonard Feather, fine. <laughs> or Gary Giddens, perhaps. There actually is there is one of the only other David Wilds. There's two other David Wilds I know of. One was a jazz critic slightly ahead maybe slightly older than me and boy did he not like when i came on the scene being david wild because uh like and and you probably i think of you might be one of the people like he wrote a few liner notes for john coltrane and and people always go i love your coltrane notes and i always say of course thank you very much i didn't write any john coltrane notes uh i'm not remotely qualified but you could have i could have they would have been terrible uh, but like Fleetwood Mac, there's an example of being a child of divorce. I got those no- They, I was the one who wrote like a lot of almost all their notes because I was the only one they all didn't hate. Like they, there was so much tension within the group. I was like the one sort of like old friend who managed to maintain a friendship with all the camps. And it was on a more serious level when uh, I was in D.C. Uh, helping LL Cool J on the christmas ceremony at the white house you know uh this right. is, uh, for this christmas and i love ll cool j my one of my favorite hosts i've ever worked with one of the greatest people i've ever worked with worked with him on the hip-hop 50 this year on the uh grammys but uh i was there when walking onto the white house grounds or the grounds of the show and i got the message that christy mcvee died and from that moment on having had the pleasure because i would you know, some versions of the notes were getting quotes from people. Sometimes I use old quotes I had from interviewing them years ago. It all depended on its its situational work. And it's also like just knowing what do they want? What, you know, how, because liner notes are something you have to have, they have to all sign off on them generally. Uh, like I did, we did a Beatles Grammy tribute years ago uh, for which I was nominated. I hope that didn't come up, but Oops, it came up, but it was Look a grand uh, We're going to add a lower third crawl to this whole thing, just continually <laughs> mentioning all your honors. So you don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, because uh, I know, you know, listen, you're getting older. You might not know. Yeah, no, I'll forget. Know. You know, it's wise. It's very wise. Yes, yeah, exactly. I'm trying to make it easy for you. This is part that's, of That's all know. I'm looking for. This is our shared retirement program, so I'm trying to just make it easy on both of us. Um, but in any case, when we did this Beatles tribute, it was this crazy project where uh, 
Apple reached out and said, okay, we need four short films telling the origin story of each beetle. And every every package will have to be approved by the other three estates or people. So imagine this. We had to do a three-minute history of John, Paul, George, and Ringo that had to be approved each one by John, Paul, George, and Ringo. It wasn't just they had to prove their own. It was that. And so that's my job. And Apple called me and said at a certain, at a certain point, who will be uh, producing these uh, packages, thinking it would be Spielberg or Ron Howard? or And uh-huh. it was like, because of the budgets of some of, you know, people don't like to spend money in all these things. It's like, I did it with Ken Ehrlich. I did it, you know, we didn't have a Spielberg. So that was a fascinating example of like, okay, you have to, that is, I think, and I will stop talking. You can just talk the rest of this podcast, but the secret of what you were saying about my place in the writer's room, just to get back to that is what I realized. And the reason I've been able to put with my wife, who's much more successful as help kids through college and have a life is a lot of the history of award shows was let's get 14 writers, comedians in a room and write a show. But what often transpires is writers, especially comedians, especially male comedians who are who tend to be a lot of the people in those rooms. If you get 12 or eight standups in a room, usually the most popular joke will be the dirtiest, weirdest, most fucked up thing that the group can all that actually amuses the group. Then you hand it to the executive producer who can either be convinced that is the thing to send to the talent or the publicist who, again, during this whole period, the publicist is rising in their power. So what happens is you get the funniest, darkest, most fucked up joke sent to people. And the publicist says, They've rejected it, or more likely, I will not even send this to my client because I don't want them seeing this and getting mad at me. So what I think happened in my career a little bit was I was able to work a lot because gradually I got the reputation like, yeah, he can write, as you said, he can be funny, but also he knows uh, having been a reporter and having worked with talent that way, I sort of knew what people would say. You know what? And and so I think I ended up doing a lot of shows, not with a room off, you know, in some cases, just myself on a lot of shows that I've done. And it's like the thought being, well, he can be funny or, you know, it's like. So, for instance, at the Grammys all these years, if LL Cool J was hosting or Queen Latifah was hosting, which both happened, they didn't have a comedy room to write. Uh, And so I would just write and I'd write whatever needed to be written, you know, uh, and there'd be moments where comedians would be incredibly gracious to me. I have a very vivid memory of Chris Rock, you know, looking uh, at at the uh, Staples. I think it was then called Staples before it was the beautiful crypto.com arena, but looking at a joke and going, I get a lot of dick jokes but this is a really good dick joke. And it was a Red Hot Chili Peppers dick joke of some sort. And I'm like, and I probably could only write a dick joke because of all the time I spend in rooms with dicks like you. Exactly. (laughs) So here's the thread that I think uh, ties all of your writing together. And you just touched on it, but whether it's liner notes, whether it's books, uh, whether it's television writing rooms, you have, a benevolence and a diplomacy 
that is clear from the get-go when people meet you, that is not only invaluable in a room, invaluable with major stars, whether they're music or show business, it's, it's important to glue shows, projects, writing, movies, whatever it is, to glue that together, you need someone around. And I think it is the greatest, funniest irony in show business that the guy with the benevolence and the diplomacy gets sent off to a room by himself. <laughs> 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 